Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles, if you will, and go to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We're going to consider Christ this morning. There in the book of Hebrews. And I'm, I don't know what the flickering is going on on the screen here, but hopefully it'll, it'll, uh, it'll continue. If not, I will, unless the Lord comes back. I was at a guest uh, preacher's fellowship one time. Oh, and um, <laughs> and the preacher got up, and uh, he's, he's preaching the morning and the evening. He's like, all right, we're going to give you, a, hopefully, a good sermon this morning from the Word of God, and, if the, and then we'll be back this evening. But if the Lord returns during, before that, my wife will be preaching. And um, <laughs> everybody laughed but her. So, it was, it was good. So, anyway, so Hebrews chapter, we're going we're gonna to bounce around from Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, uh, but to get us in the in the spirit, if you will, of the word, we're going to begin reading right there in verse number one of chapter two, and we'll read down to verse five or six of chapter three. It's a, it seems like a lot, but it's really just a few verses here. Um, I know the passage here says Hebrews three one. That's where we get our title from. Consider Christ, and you'll see that here in a moment. Uh, but look there at verse number one of Hebrews chapter two. The Bible says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Verse 4 says, God also bearing the witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection to the world to come, whereof we speak, uh, but in one, uh, but one in a certain place, as David, of course, testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection unto his feet, for in that he put all in subjection unto him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctify us and they who are sanctified, that's him and us, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God gave has given me. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself 
hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Wherefore, verse 1 of chapter 3, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for allowing us to be here this morning. We thank you for the reading of, of your word. Lord, we, we trust and believe that your word will not return void. It will do what you've set it out to do. And, and I pray, Lord, that will be the case here today. Lord, help it to convict us. Help it to draw us closer to you and bring us into a, a right relationship with you, with your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. So we have very clearly here the, the title of Consider Christ. And I want to say again, thank you again for being here. I know it's, I know that we're supposed to be in church as Christians, but we may have to make a decision to be in church. And I thank you for that decision. And as I have prayed here already, I hope that what we do here as we look into the text, as we, as we worship the Lord in this sermon, uh, that it all draws us closer to him, uh, to an intimate relationship with our Savior. And here we are in, in the book of Hebrews. Now, it's been a while since I've preached anything from Hebrews. It's, I was looking through my notes, I think 2018. Uh, so it's been a while. Uh, those who have been coming to the Bible Christ, our German-speaking uh, ministry here, my brother Axel's been teaching through Hebrews. I think he's around eight or nine there, which is next Sunday. Um, but it's been a while for us. But Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, um, some would say even Paul wrote it, but it's officially anonymous. But it is a rich book. It is a very rich book. Uh, it's for all to read. Yes, it's written, written to the Hebrews. It's written to the Jews to them, but for all, including us. Because it ties the Old Covenant in the Old Testament to the New Covenant. It puts them together, and it, it delivers the information that we need to see and understand how Christ is the mediator of the New Covenant. He's actually the mediator of even the Old Covenant, but he puts these two together, the New fulfilling the Old. And as a, as a whole an entire letter, it begins simply with the word God. It begins with God, and it closes with the phrase, grace to all men. Amen. So it elevates the book of Hebrews. It elevates Jesus to his rightful place as, as our creator, as our redeemer, and as the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy. That's our Savior. Hebrews 1, and we'll go through some of these things here, but on the, on the wave tops, Hebrews 1 presents Christ as God in the flesh. Uh, Hebrews 2 presents salvation as our only escape, and Jesus as the provider of that salvation, of that great salvation, the author calls it. And along the way, the author of Hebrews continues to remind his readers through 1, 2, 3, and so forth, that while Jesus is the Son of God and was the Son of God, he remained God, even through Christmas, even through all these things, he robing, him robing flesh, he is all God and all man. He remained God throughout the entire process. In fact, he still is God. It's also still man, by the way. Christmas was a permanent thing. 
Um, and as our creator slash redeemer, he has never ceased to be God. That's important for us to understand. But as Hebrews 2.9, look at verse 9 there of Hebrews chapter 2. The Bible states that he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now, he is eternal God. He is the eternal begotten son of the eternal God. But when he was born in the manger, he was made a little lower than the angels, specifically so that he could be crowned with glory and honor. And by the grace of God, the grace of God, he tasted death for every man. It's a little different aspect of grace there. And after laying all these foundational truths here about the Lord, the author of Hebrews begins what we call in chapter 3, what we call chapter 3, the chapters are a later edition. The, the, the author of Hebrews didn't write in chapters. He wrote a letter like you and I would write a letter. But chapter 3 begins with a plea for us to consider Christ. And there's, there's always a good time to consider Christ. But as we go into the Christmas season, you know, with Christ actually in the title, you know, how can we go through such a season without considering whom we are celebrating, considering Christ? We are to consider Christ this morning. That word consider is an easy enough word. It's, it's not some graduate level word. But just so we are uh, on the same page here, it means to behold it means to fully observe or to fully perceive, to think carefully about, even to meditate in some applications. And in this first verse of chapter 3, the author very clearly gives us two reasons we should consider Christ. He gives us two positions there. Very easy to see. Consider the apostle, the apostleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and consider the high priest of our profession, the Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. So we see those very clearly. But I think in the text here, one chapter 1, 2, and 3, there are many more positions and many more attributes of God that we need to consider. And with that being said, I want to go back to chapter 1. We haven't read that, but look at verse number 1. Verse number 1. The Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners... Um, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the first aspect I want to point out this morning, not clearly there in verse number 1 of chapter 3, but clearly in chapter 1, is consider him as our creator. Jesus Christ is our creator. He made the worlds, verse 2 says. He is the creator of all the ages, uh, is one way to understand that all time is the product of God's creation, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. All things, by the word of his power, he upholds. Look at verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. His power, that his is Jesus Christ. Paul would later in a different place in Colossians chapter 1 elaborate even further when he wrote this. He said, by him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's Colossians chapter 1. So our takeaway is that no part of life no part of life, no part of anything, 
could ever exist without the creative powers of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our creator. John chapter 1 verse 3 is abundantly clear, driving that point home even further. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Our creator. You're probably thinking, well, what does that have to do with considering Christ? Well, as a part of his creation, we which are made should automatically consider he who made us. Right? I think that's a, I think that's a given. We are the work of his hands. No other. The work of his hands. We're not the work of anybody else. No, nothing. No, no, um, we'll just leave it at that. No, nothing else. I don't know, that's not good English, but we are only the product of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a part of his creation, we should consider him automatically. Even in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 1, look at that. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, this is God speaking to the Son, and thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. You know, most Christians, if not all of us here today, will readily admit that Jesus is our creator. That's not a problem for us to understand. We believe the Bible. He is our creator. There's, we didn't happen to just be here one day. God created us. We will readily admit that. We will even admit that he's the creator of all and even our personal creator. Now, I love the book of Genesis and how God is there digging into the ground. You can just and, and to, to make Adam and you can see him just all the God of the whole world taking just time to make me, to make man. I mean, what is man? So our, I say that to say this. We readily admit that he's our creator. So this encouragement this morning to consider him is not just that. It's a little bit more than that. It's a little bit more than the facts that he created us. To consider him as your creator this morning, in my understanding of the application for us this morning, is connected to his ownership of us. Who's you are? Right? We are to consider him as our creator, as our owner. He owns us. We belong to him. You know, we, we are his registered trademark. Maybe we should have those little R's somewhere on us to remind us from time to time that we belong to a holy God. We belong to him. And I think when we truly grasp the idea of who we belong to, I mean, we really get it sunk into our minds. And we really understand that we are just stewards of this. Stewards. We go through life a little bit differently because I don't belong to me. I belong to him. It should change our life when we realize that I'm just a steward of my life. The house, the car, my bank account, all that I have, my health. I'm a steward of these things. They all belong to God. Amen. And if you are a Christian, you are not only the work of his hands from the initial creation, you've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a high price through the cross. You've been twice created. Twice created. A new creation in Christ, the Bible says. We've been twice compelled to consider our Creator. Fully perceive Him today. Fully perceive and consider who He is as your Maker. He is our Creator. Consider Christ. But back over in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, we can see some very clear things in addition to 
him being our creator. Verse 1 again says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle of, and high priest of our profession. Consider the apostle of Christ Jesus. His apostleship. He is our apostle. And I realize that when we read or hear about apostles, we don't generally think of our Savior. We generally think of the Lord's apostles, of the Lord's 12 apostles. And that's okay, but our text here clearly makes a distinction different than the 12. The apostleship of Christ. This letter even begins with Jesus being the sent one, which is what apostle means. Look again at verse number one. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke by the prophets in the old days, but now has sent his son. Now spoke, speaks to the world through his son. God sent others, yes, even Moses, who we'll talk about briefly here in a moment, who the author of Hebrews compares Christ to, but now he sent his son. And we are to consider the apostleship of our profession, Christ Jesus. Paul may be considered the apostle to the Gentiles, and the others may be considered the apostles to the nation of Israel, but Jesus Christ is God's apostle to the world, to all of us. He was sent by the Father to every man, including the 12 apostles. You could say he's the apostle to the apostles. Again, the word apostle literally means sent one, and biblically speaking, an apostle is one sent from God. Jesus is therefore God's official apostle. Because he is God. He is God. He is sent by God and he is God. And as we read through Hebrews chapter 3, we already read a little bit there, we will see that Moses was also sent by God. And the author here is comparing Moses to Christ or Christ to Moses. But he was also sent by God, Moses that is, to deliver Israel out of Egypt. We know the story. Out of Egypt, through the wilderness, back to the promised land. There were some hiccups, if you will, along the way, to put it, to put it uh, lightly. And the rest of this chapter here in chapter 3 and into the next, and maybe even a little bit in chapter 5, the author, again, of Hebrews wrote about how the nation of Israel continued to rebel against God's sent one, against Moses. In other words, to put it differently, God sent them faithful Moses as a representative. An apostle is a representative, as, a, as an ambassador of God, if you will. God sent them faithful Moses uh, to Israel to represent himself. And while some received Moses, many did not. They didn't consider him as a sent individual from God. And I believe what God is conveying here in chapter 3, of, of one of many things, of course, is that a greater than Moses is now here. A greater than Moses has now been sent. And there are at least two applications from this. To the Hebrew reader, maybe even three, to the Hebrew reader, to the Jew, if you considered Moses sent from God, consider Christ. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And if you are of the mindset that you might have rejected Moses back then, and you have that spirit today, a far greater than Moses is still here among us. Moses was faithful in his house, but Jesus owns the house. He's the creator of the house. You may or may not accept Moses, but accept the creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the official apostle of God. He is God's ambassador to us. And I think about that sometimes, and God sent his only begotten son, God sent Jesus Christ, his apostle, here in, in, in Hebrews chapter 3, to every man, including you, including me, 
And when I think about that, God, you know, it's not like uh, an American ambassador to China or something like that, where he goes there and he represents all of America to all of China, right? Jesus Christ represents all of God, yes, because he is God, but to you personally. To the world, yes, but to you personally. He is sent by God as God, as an apostle to Bill Inslee, to Shannon Falanche, to Katerina, to Amelia, and so forth and so forth. He is God's apostle to you, to you, God's ambassador, personally from the Father. And if, if that doesn't resonate, I don't know what would. And we can certainly echo the words again from Paul there in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. What is man? I know we said that last week, but let's get a hold of that. What is man? Who am I that God would take attention of me? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I that God should consider me? But get this now, God has considered you. He has considered you by name. We are to consider him by name. He is not only our creator, and he is not only God's apostle sent to us individually. Notice that verse again, and I think this kind of crescendos, if you will. It gets, it gets more, almost said more better, but that's not right. But it gets better and better as, as we go along in the delivery of this, I believe. But in chapter one there, or, or chapter three, verse one, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We are to consider him as our high priest. You know, much of the book of Hebrews, again, it's a, it's a different kind of book. It's the, it's the Old Testament in the New Testament. And much of the book of Hebrews deals with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the priesthood is mentioned more in Hebrews than any other place in the New Testament, by a long shot. Just a mere count of the word used for priest and the book of Acts uses it 15 times, but they're usually just talking to the high priest king, the chief priest king. So it's just a, a mention of that title. Hebrews, talking about the priesthood, uses it no less than 26 times. Hebrews stands alone in the New Testament with its references to the office, the purpose, and the fulfillment of the, of the priesthood. The only other place that's even mentioned like that is in 2 Peter, where we are a royal priesthood, which we'll quote here in a moment. So in no other book, very clearly in no other book, do we see a fuller picture of Jesus Christ being our great high priest. No other book paints that picture better than the book of Hebrews. And remember again, this letter was written to the Jews, so it makes sense for this to come across this way. But it also, there are some things assumed by the Jew that we may not automatically assume because he's referencing their whole livelihood. So I'm going to give you... Uh, reminders this morning, maybe a few definitions about what he's talking about in that priesthood. Now, again, biblically speaking, an apostle represents God to man. A high priest represents man to God. It goes the other way. And under the old covenant, the priesthood was set apart under Aaron. who was the first priest there. Under, under him was set apart for this special task to represent man to a holy God. And at the top of that priesthood, priestly order, was one man, and that's the high priest. He was in charge of keeping Israel in communion with God through the sacrifices for them and for himself. And every day he sacrificed something 
for the people and for himself. Every day during the, during the, uh, the trek through the wilderness, and even after that, there was continually burning to keep that communion, that relationship open between man and God. But once a year, as Hebrew 9 kind of clarifies this, he would enter into the presence of God behind that holy of holies. Y'all, y'all know this story. we got the outer court. you got the inner court. you got the holy place. And you got the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, the mercy seat, the cherubim stitched on the walls where God would meet man once a year. And he would go in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur as we call it uh, in some places, and he would make an atonement with a blood sacrifice once a year. One man who needed atonement for his own sins would offer the blood of bulls and goats for himself and for the people every year. In, in that day. So in sum, let's put all this together here. Moses was the apostle from God in, in the text here. And he was sent to teach the laws of God. Aaron, the high priest at the time, he would facilitate their atonement because they broke the laws that God gave them through Moses. And don't be too hard on them because we're just as guilty. So there is an apostle from Moses, God telling them how to live right, and then there's a priest mediating for them to, to maintain that relationship when we don't live right. Because they broke the laws like we do. But if you think about that old covenant, it could never achieve more than that. It could never go higher than it. It could rise above what was set in place. They had over and over, the, starting with Moses, the prophets, all the way through John the Baptist, over and over and over again, God would send them people to tell them how to live right. And then the high priest, the priesthood, would come in and make amends for when they didn't live right. But they couldn't get out of that system. It was a perpetual cycle of sin and sacrifice. We couldn't get out of it. Man could never rise above it because he himself was sinful. The only way to break from this cycle was God, was for God to intervene. He had to send his only begotten son to represent God to man as our apostle. But humanity needed much more than just a representation from God, as great and significant as that is. And even though God could clearly represent himself as Jesus Christ, Man needed holy representation from God. He needed somebody from God in the flesh. We needed a high priest. We needed a sinless man to facilitate, or maybe a modern day term, to broker our atonement between us and God. No man with sin can broker anything between a holy God and a sinful man. That's not possible. We needed a holy broker, if you will, a sinless mediator to facilitate that atonement. And Jesus would be that person. He is that person. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, verse 10. The Bible says, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praises unto thee. And again, I will put my trust. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, 
himself, Jesus, likewise took part of the flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy them that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them through fear of death, that were all a lifetime subject to bondage, subject to a sentence of death, that's you and I. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. The angels were not under a punishment of death, the ones that have not fallen. Wherefore, in all things, verse 17, it behooved him to make to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Look at that last phrase, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That was the high priest's job, to make reconciliation between fallen Israel and a holy God. But it's only temporary. He could not do anything permanent. We needed a holy representation from God. We needed a high priest. Jesus became that high priest. All God, all man, perfectly representing God to man and man to God. In fact, he's the only person fit to do so. I mean, think about that. If, if I had, if me and Shannon had an argument one day, which we never argue. I don't think we ever argue. What's that? You throw things at me. Not arguing. I'm the reason not to argue. But if we had some issues in here and we needed somebody to mediate, right? And we brought Jenny in to mediate. Would she be a little biased? She'd be on my side. She'd be on my side. <laughs> but if I brought Kiki in, she would be on Shannon's side, right? So we need somebody that's that's all <laughs> that can properly mediate. Now think about that between God and man. If God was all God, as he is, of course, and he were to mediate with man, we serve a God that's holy. Let me just beyond our imagination. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. But there are some things he cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. And he cannot misrepresent, misrepresent himself. And he cannot do things that are divinely illogical. There are some things that are logical to us, but are logical to him, admittedly. You know, he's greater than we are. So he is a logical God. Can God, as a logical God, truly represent man without Jesus Christ? He cannot. He's not God. Or he's, he's not man. And man, on this side, can I truly represent God as a high priest without having no, I mean, without being God? I cannot. But Jesus Christ, who is all God and all man, is the perfect mediator between God and man, the only mediator. He can represent 100% of man because he is 100% man, and he can represent 100% of God because he is 100% God. He is the only mediator between us and God. The word mediator itself is used three times in Hebrews. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, the Bible says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And because he is our mediator, because he is our high priest, as believers, I love this part, this makes us priest after the order of Christ after the order of Christ. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 states that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. Therefore, no believer needs any other priest than Jesus Christ. We need no other mediator between us and God. You do not need a pastor to speak to God, to commune with God. That partition has been removed. When Christ came out of that grave, that veil was torn, and we have full access to God the Father by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He is our apostle, our high priest. 
And I want to say this, that only Jesus Christ stands in the great gulf between us and God. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He is our high priest. And then I want you to look again at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Again, in my mind, it just keeps getting better. <laughs> Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the holy calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Then go up to verse 16 and 17 again. Verse 16 says he talked, it says, it, the author writes that he took on him the seed of Abraham. And verse 17 says, uh, that it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. But back down in verse number 1 of chapter 3 again, we are to consider the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus is his name. That's his name, Yeshua, Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus is his name. Lord and Christ are his titles. The title Lord focuses on him as our master. The title Christ focuses on him as our savior, as our Messiah, if you will. Consider our Messiah. I don't think it's a mistake that the author of Hebrews would put the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Consider the Messiah, Jesus Christ, here at the end of verse number one. You see, Jesus was sent to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. We see that very clearly in the Gospels. And he was to be that mediator between us and God with the new covenant, the broker that we talked about, of a better covenant through the priesthood. But our sinful condition, get this now, it still needs more. We needed more than a holy representation from God. And we needed more than a holy man to represent us from God. Our sinful condition was that depraved because all of creation was tainted by sin. All of it. At Romans 8, 22, and many other places talk about the whole creation groaning and travailing and praying. We live in a fallen world, not just in humanity, but everywhere it's, it's fallen. In other words, so even with a even with the perfect apostleship of Christ, and even with the perfect priesthood of Christ, there was no sinless sacrifice for him to throw on the altar. On the altar, Because every lamb, every bull, every, everything was all a part of this creation. And it was broken. It was sinful. All of the lambs that were slain from creation to the cross could never take away the sins of the world because they were a part of the fallen world. Hebrews 10, chapter 1 uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of these things, can never, never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. It could not rid sin from us. So not only must Christ mediate that atonement as our high priest before God, he must become the atonement. He must become the sacrifice. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. I shared this with my wife uh, again yesterday. This, this speaks to me. I, I can't get it out of my mind, but look at 16 again. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, praise God. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, the author of Hebrews has already, at least in my mind, through chapters 1, 2, and through many other parts of the Bible, has already solidified the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. Right? Hebrews 1, 2, very clear. Let's just go through a couple of those things so you can be as sure as I am. In chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the express image of God. Look at there at verse number 3 of chapter 1. He is the express image of God, that he is the Son of God. And that we even read in that chapter that angels worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He is even, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, that's God the Father to God the Son, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he is even called God by the Father. And that word God in verse 8 is the same word, theos, in the Greek, that Hebrew starts off with. God, who at sundry times spoke through prophets, now sends his Son, and then later on God says unto the Son, Thou art God, just like me, in verse number 1, the very first word. God is God. Jesus Christ is God. All God has... A.T.A. Ironside, I know I've quoted that many times, he's as much God as if he were never man, and he's as much man as if he were never God. So he's all God, all man. But verse 17 of chapter 2 again, the Bible states that it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. It behooved him to be made like unto us. So if he's already made the point across that he is all God and all man, I think there's something a little bit more here. To behoove, of course, that sounds like an old NCO word from the days, right? Behooves you to do whatever, you know. But it means that it is a duty or a responsibility for someone to do something. And personally, I think this statement here in, in chapter 2, verse 17, it goes beyond God taking on flesh. As great as that is, it goes beyond that. But I think it's referring to God taking on not just the flesh, but the spiritual bankruptcy of man. God is becoming man, and all that man is, God is becoming a part of. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, For he, God, hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became all of man, all of our failings, all of our shortcomings. The man who never told a lie took on the punishment of a liar. The man who never murdered took on the punishment of murder. All of those things Jesus became. He became our sin. He became our debt. And not only did he become our debt, but it behooved him to become our debt. Even though he is without sin, he held himself responsible for our redemption. He held himself responsible for our redemption. He's not guilty, but he held himself responsible to save me. He made it his responsibility. He indebted himself because we were in debt. That blows my mind. I mean, think about this. Have, have you, <laughs> you've heard of some people getting married and they marry into money. <laughs> Right? You've heard of people doing that. You've, heard, you've probably heard of people getting married because of money. Oh, I'm, oh, he's got all the money in the world, or she's got all the money in the world. Let me, let me marry into that. But generally speaking, very rarely do we hear about people marrying into debt. Unless you talk to my wife. 
<laughs> Please don't bother my life. We're not in debt anymore, but there was there were some times. I put um, a gallon of milk on DPP. Remember those things? You know, <laughs> long time ago. But we don't hear about people wanting to marry into debt. We certainly don't hear about marriages because of debt. You know, telling someone you are about to file for bankruptcy because you mismanaged your assets is, is generally not a good way to impress a potential spouse. You know, if you're sitting there, you're on your first date or you're whatever, you're courting as we call in the old days, you know, I'm about to file bankruptcy. What do you think about that? It's usually not attractive. But consider Christ. It behooved him to be made human so that he could take on the debt of humanity. It behooved him. He took it his responsibility to become human so that he could take on the debt of humanity. I know that's like Christianity 101, but that should drive a wedge right into your heart. Not that he did it, although that's, that's remarkable in itself, but he had to do it. That's who he is. It behooved him. You see, in a very real sense, we mismanage our eternal assets through willful disobedience. And in our sinful, natural state, we are spiritually bankrupt. But God chose to put himself in debt with our sins simply because he loved us. He assumed the spiritual mortgage of our broken souls by becoming our sin. By reading through various New Testament passages, we can conclude that while God is never attracted to sin, he is attracted to our redemption. It draws him to save us. Hebrews 12.2 states that Jesus endured the cross with joy. With joy. We usually don't picture the cross with joy. You know, he's the only groom who ever entered into a marriage because his bride was in dire straits due to her own self-inflicting sentence of death. He married the church because she was broke. He made her the church. What a, what a savior we have. What a Messiah. You know, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. He died for this. Consider him today as your Messiah. He is your Messiah, your Savior, your Christ, your personal Christ. All of the sacrifices before Christ or after, for that matter, they could never do what Jesus did. They could never pay for what he paid. All of the priests before him could never do what Jesus did in the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices. We can almost read in that over and over and over again, which can never take away the sins. But this man, Hebrews says, but this man, after he offered up one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Our Messiah. My Messiah. My, my Savior. One man, one sacrifice, one Savior. Jesus Christ. Consider him today. And then lastly, as we kind of close this morning, I want to give you one more, one more point to consider about our Savior. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. This is a real quick one. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, 
He is able to succor them that are tempted. We are to consider him also as our helper. He is our helper. Because he was fully human and because he stood faithful through the challenges of life without sin, he's able to help us. Again, verse 10, it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. It was becoming of God to become man. It was becoming of God to become man so that he could suffer as a man and as a man prove himself perfect in order to be the captain of our salvation. And because he proved faithful, and because he is also God and now sits on the throne of God, he is able to help us through any, anything that we face, anything at all. It doesn't matter what we face tomorrow, later on today, whatever sickness is bouncing around inside your home, he is able to carry you through any of these things. In fact, turn to chapter 4, just a page over, and look at the end of chapter 4. Look at verse 14. Chapter 4 of Hebrews says, verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast, hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, he is our creator. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. He is our Messiah. And he ever lives to make intercession for us so that we can find grace to help in time of need. Consider him. Consider Christ today and this Christmas and never let it go. Never turn back. Hold fast that profession. Let us pray.